Hello, and welcome to Cinema Sunday. I am your host, Candy Thomas, and each week I'm going to watch one of the 95 movies that have won an Oscar for Best Picture and tell you exactly what I think of them. I follow the same template every week, so if you're new to the podcast, here's how it works. I tell you the basic details of the movie, things like who's in it and what's it about, and then, of course, where you can stream it if you want to watch it. I also answer these three questions. Does it stand the test of time? Is it Oscar-worthy? And should you watch it, or is this a steaming pile of crap on a stick? Just as a friendly warning, along with my honest assessment of these movies, you'll also get my hot takes on many current events. I like to rant about the things that irritate me, and I always mix it with a heaping dose of adult language. It's just like me to be up here fussing and cussing, so please be sure you listen with caution. Before we begin, I'd like to thank Wikipedia and IMDb, as they are great sources of information for all things movie and Oscar-related. So with that, let's take it away. This week's Oscar-winning film is Mutiny on the Bounty. It was released November 8th, 1935. It's an oldie. Directed by Frank Lloyd. It stars Charles Lawton, Clark Gable, and this other dude, I think it's pronounced Franchotone, maybe? Anyway, it was nominated for a total of eight Oscars, and it won one. It won for Best Picture, and that's all. It has been the only movie in the last 88 years to win for Best Picture, but absolutely nothing else. If you want to watch it, it can be found on HBO Max if you have a subscription. Otherwise, you can pay a few bucks and you can watch it on Amazon Prime Video or Vudu. So what's it about? Well, it's based on a real event, but the movie has been criticized for its historical inaccuracies. It begins in Portsmouth, England in 1787. A group of men led by Fletcher Christian, who's played by Clark Gable, enter a local pub and perform what's called a press gang, which is the taking of men into the military by force and without notice. So they can literally just walk into a pub and go, you, you, and you, you're coming with us. Congratulations, buddy. You've just joined the Navy. And if anyone tries to fight or run, they are put in jail and probably tortured. And the best part of this particular night in this particular pub, well, let's just say it wasn't packed with the type of men who normally make up an elite squad of fierce fighting men. Just a bunch of sad old drunk guys who have no business being in the British Navy. They are told the assignment is aboard the HMS Bounty, and it will set sail for two years. Imagine that. There you are, just minding your own business, just drinking Jaeger bombs, and someone grabs you by the collar and says, get your ass on that boat, we're leaving. But what really frightens these men is they are told the ship will be commanded by none other than Captain Bly. Bly, played by Charles Lawton, is known to be a brutal tyrant who routinely administers harsh punishment to any man aboard his ship who lacks discipline or questions his authority. Across town, in a well-to-do home, we meet Roger Byam. He's played by the guy whose name I can't pronounce. I'm just going to call him Mr. Tone from this point forward. 
Roger's family has a rich naval tradition, and it's perfectly natural that he would pursue the opportunity to serve his country as those did before him. The mission of the HMS Bounty is one of discovery, science, and trade for England. So it's only fitting that a man of Byam's standing be a part of this historic sailing. Byam is bright-eyed and idealistic. This is just the first step in what he's sure will be a fruitful naval career. He says he's going to come back an admiral. To give you a mental picture, Byam is this young, handsome, blonde guy with a million megawatt smile and probably a little too naive about what he's getting himself into. Today, he'd probably be played by Ryan Gosling, but the Ryan Gosling that's in Crazy Stupid Love, you know him, the well-dressed, good-looking, confident guy who ends up having everything go his way because he's also very charming and likable. That's Roger Byam. Before long, it's time for the bounty to set sail. We see all the final preparations, everyone boarding the ship, including the one-legged drunk who's been assigned as the ship's doctor who manages to bring an obnoxious amount of booze on board with him. Byam has been assigned the role of midshipman, which is the lowest-ranking officer, and will be trained and mentored on board by Fletcher Christian, who is the ship's lieutenant. The tension is palpable when Captain Bly boards. You can just tell by looking at him that he's an insufferable prick. He's short, stubby, and unattractive, with total resting bitch face, thick, hideous eyebrows, and those pants that are pulled up over his chubby belly so they rest just under what I assume are saggy man boobs. You just know he was never a popular boy or a well-treated young boy, so now he's spending his days bullying others. And it doesn't take long for us to see how horrid this man really is. Before they depart, they are to participate in a flogging through the fleet, which is a form of court-martial where the man accused of a crime is put in a rowboat and then he's brought around to each individual ship in the fleet, and each of them are expected to participate in his punishment. In this particular case, someone aboard each ship is to deliver two dozen lashes with a cat of nine tails, while the entire crew bears witness. The man struck his captain and will be whipped over 300 times for it, which is something Byam calls out as being excessive, but Bly revels in it, insisting that good discipline is the only way a man will ever learn respect for those above him. The really crazy part is that the man, upon being delivered to the bounty, is discovered to have already died from his injuries. But Bly insists that his dead body be whipped anyway, which immediately tells many on board the kind of sadist they're dealing with. They set sail, and I, I have to admit, it's a freaking wonder they even get out of the English Channel, considering the crew were pulled out of pubs and prisons less than a week ago and have no idea how to sail. There's an important early scene between Bly and Christian, where Bly is mouthing off about the vagrants and rascals that make up the crew, and how he may be flogging a good number of them. Christian says that they are sailing for Tahiti. It's going to be 10,000 miles and two years that they are all pinned up in tight quarters. Perhaps Bly should try to be nice, or else something could go horribly wrong. They're sitting on a powder keg. It's a little bit of foreshadowing, but let's put a pin in this because we're going to come back to it. Byam and the other two midshipmen all share small quarters, and it's getting difficult for them to get along. At one point, Byam and Hayward get into an argument on deck, and Byam is seen punching him. 
Bly punishes him by making him climb up the masthead and stay there until he has permission to come back down. For those who have never sailed, the masthead is the highest part of the ship. It's that big pole where the sail is tied. It's probably three stories high and has just a little tiny section for where you can stand or sit. Byam gets up there and he ties himself to the mast to keep from falling. The ship runs into a terrible storm and it's hours that Byam is left up there in the cold wind with strong waves knocking the ship from side to side. It's like that scene in the Jim Carrey movie, The Truman Show, where they're intentionally trying to make his boat sink and he ties himself to it and nearly drowns, but he's getting whipped around, dunked and in and out of the water lightning and thunder, it's basically what Byam is subjected to until Christian goes up and rescues him. Byam is taken to the doctor's quarters, but Bly lectures Christian about defying his orders. So Christian has to send Byam back up the masthead for more punishment. But this time, Christian makes sure he's dressed warmer, and Byam climbs back up there with a big smile on his face as if he's not bothered at all by this punishment, which really pisses off Bly. We can't help but notice that although Christian follows Bly's orders, he doesn't seem to be fond of how Bly treats the crew. Something is starting to brew. As the journey goes on, Bly continues finding reasons to punish the men in his charge. He lectures them about being pitiful at performing their duties as seamen and inflicts punishment upon them. Some are beaten or whipped. Some are forced to live off half the normal food rations. Christian tries to reason with Bly, reminding him that these men were forced into the Navy. It's understandable they aren't as gung-ho as men who would have volunteered. But it's no matter to Bly. Cruelty is the point, and he's going to continue to inflict it as often as he can. The bounty sails past the coast of Africa and down through the South Atlantic. We know this because every few minutes they put up a map on the screen and there's like this black line drawing the ship's progress. The further they go, the worse Bly's behavior becomes. When Christian and Byam try to stick up for the crew members, Bly makes them carry out the punishments. At one point, Byam looks like he's about to cry as he's forced to stand and count the lashings being given to a sweet old man he tried to defend. At one point, a man accidentally slips from one of the mast ledges and plunges into the water. They rescue him, but he's punished for his clumsiness. He is hung up by his arms with a heavy anchor tied around his neck. It's a wonder his arms aren't ripped out of their sockets. Another man, whose only crime is begging for a drink of water while he's scrubbing the deck in the hot sun, is thrown overboard with his hands tied behind his back. When they drag him back up to the deck, it doesn't seem surprising to anyone that he's dead. When we believe it just can't get any worse, the HMS bounty hits a calm patch and is basically at a standstill. With no wind blowing, it's just sitting lifeless and it can't get anywhere. Several members of the crew are sent out in rowboats with ropes attached, expected to actually tow the ship until the wind can pick up again. Can you imagine? These men are beaten, exhausted, and hungry, and now they're expected to row and tow this ship the rest of the way to Tahiti. Never mind that they're at the southern tip of Africa and it looks to be about 95 degrees outside with no available shade and clearly no wind. The abuse is at an all-time high. The men are barely eating and they have very little strength, yet Bly orders them to be whipped if they can't row any faster. We start to see some separation among the ship's leadership. 
Bly recognizes that Christian and Byam are showing less and less respect for his authority, but he continues to wield it like an iron fist with the crew, demanding that he be obeyed no matter what. So the whippings continue, the starvation continues, and the anger grows. They are getting close to Tahiti when Christian finally loses his cool with Bly. He's being asked to sign a forged logbook, claiming the cargo on board is very different than what it really is. I liken it to an expense statement where Bly is trying to say, here's how much we've spent on food for the men, when Christian knows Bly is starving the men and pocketing the money. Bly makes a point of gathering all the men up on deck, reading from the handbook that says failure to obey a captain's orders can be punished with the death penalty. Then he once again asks Christian to sign the book. Christian does so, stating with the crew as his witness that he will bring up a formal inquiry into Bly when they return to England. Bly calls him a mutinous dog, and the two are just about to come to blows when someone yells, Land ho! Finally, I fucking made it to Tahiti. And it's a sight to behold. Mind you, this is the 1700s. So it's not like today where every person over the age of like three has been to a tropical island. These men have probably never left England. So they think they have died and gone to heaven. Bly is reunited with a man named Hatiti, who is the island chief. The two had met 10 years ago when Bly was sailing with Captain Cook. Bly secures permission to collect a thousand breadfruit trees. For those of you who don't know, breadfruit is a flowering tree in the mulberry and jackfruit family. It's also one of the highest yielding fruit plants with a single tree producing up to 200 grapefruit-sized fruits per season. In order to gather them, the crew will be required to remain in Tahiti for several months. I'm sure no one is bummed about that. Hatiti gives a formal invitation to Bayam to come stay in his home during their visit, as Bayam has been charged with writing a dictionary of the Tahitian language for important men back in England. He'll need to build a strong relationship with the tribe's leader to fully embrace the language and customs of their people. Bly insists that Bayam can have day leave only, but he must return to the ship each night. But Hatiti insists Bayam live with him like family. And this is the first time we see Bly having to acquiesce to any other person. As for the crew members, Bly quickly bursts their bubble. Anyone who thought this was a vacation is dead wrong. They are to be harvesting the fruit trees and refurbishing the ship for her return journey. They will only be allowed on the island as he permits, and it will be with a rare exception. He gets his revenge on Christian by forcing him to stay aboard the bounty the entire time. He will have no shore leave the entire time they are in Tahiti. Life is good for the time being. Although the men are laboring, they're surrounded by tropical beauty and many lovely little island women. Bayam is enjoying his life with Hatiti and the affections of his beautiful daughter, Tehani. Hatiti convinces Bly to allow Christian a one-day pass so that he's able to see the island. Almost immediately after agreeing, Bly changes his mind, and he forbids it. But Christian disregards the order and spends his day ashore hanging out with Bayam, Tehani, and another lovely Tahitian woman named Maimiti. I'm not a sappy romantic, but I guess it's entirely possible to meet and fall in love with someone in a single day. I think it may be a bit challenging when you don't speak the same language, but hey, anything is possible. 
At the end of his one-day shore leave, Christian promises Maimiti that he will return for her one day. Just prior to leaving Tahiti, Bly is made aware that the breadfruit trees, which now fill an entire lower cabin of the ship, require an unusual amount of water to keep them alive. And you know what happens next. Of course, Captain Bly decided to cut the water rations for the entire crew. To make matters worse, as the men return to the bounty, sacks filled with fruits and meats as gifts from the islanders, they are made to hand everything over to the men in charge. They will get to keep none of it. Not long after leaving Tahiti behind, shit comes to a head. Bly accuses either Christian or his men on the night watch of stealing coconuts. He also forces Christian to hand over some beautiful pearls that were a gift from Maimiti, claiming anything of value received on this journey is the property of the crown. Christian isn't the type of man who will accept his honor being questioned, so Bly calling him a thief and a scoundrel really crosses the line. Matters get worse when Bly is ready to administer punishment to two crewmen, but in order to proceed, it requires that all the others be on the deck to witness the whipping. The ship's doctor is absent due to illness, but Bly insists that he's just drunk and forces the men to pull him from his bed and report to the deck. Byam and Christian insist he is very sick and should be allowed to rest, but it only makes Bly more angry, demanding that he appear before him at once. And if Byam can't get the drunk doctor on the deck, it will be Byam who receives a flogging instead. The doctor manages to stumble up onto the deck. It's apparent how ill this old man is. And as you might guess, as the flogging begins, the doctor drops dead at Bly's feet. This is when Christian makes a tough decision. He's going to overthrow the captain and he's going to take over the ship. He knows there are several men with him, but there will be many who are bound by naval duty or English manners who might stand in the way. No one has any love for Bly, but there are those who will side with him because they fear retribution if they don't. But it's time to go, bitches. We're over 90 minutes into the movie and finally we have a fucking mutiny on our hands. Christian unlocks the weapon storage and ensures his group is well armed. They take Bly prisoner. They force him and about 20 of his most loyal into a rowboat with a little bit of food, a little bit of water, and a compass. They are left to fend for themselves in the middle of the South Atlantic, about 5,000 miles from anywhere. Byam and another midshipman don't agree with the mutiny. In fact, there are many left on board who don't, but there just simply wasn't any additional room in the rowboats for them to go with Bly. As the rowboat drifts out to sea, Bly threatens that he will somehow make it back to England and will ensure that every single mutineer is court-martialed and put to death. The mutineers return to Tahiti, and why wouldn't they? Now, they know they're going to need to hide out for the rest of their lives, but there are certainly far worse places they could do it, that's for sure. Christian tells Byam and the other men aboard who do not agree with the mutiny that they will be safe as long as they don't try to retake the ship. Byam agrees, but this is the end of the friendship between these two men. They just don't see eye to eye anymore, and it's obvious it's very hard for both of them. Meanwhile, that crafty old bastard Bly isn't ready to die yet. He manages to steer that little rowboat all the way to the Dutch East Indies, where they find a friendly civilization to help them. It's not without challenge, but you have to admire the tenacity of a man who really doesn't care a bit about those around him. He doesn't care if they starve or drown or eaten by sharks. 
Bly is hell-bent on making it home and getting his revenge, and he really doesn't care about the cost. Fast forward probably at least a year, and the mutineers are celebrating Christmas in Tahiti. Christian and Maimiti are now married with a baby. Christian and Byam reunite and are the best of friends again. Life is good, but that won't last long. Suddenly, there's an English ship sighted just a couple miles off the shore. They know they will be court-martialed if caught. So they grab their families, they grab some food and a lot of supplies, and they board the bounty in hopes of escape. Byam and the others, who never intended to be part of the mutiny before, decided to stay behind on the island and hope to sail home with the English Navy. In their minds, they've done nothing wrong, so they have nothing to fear. They actually think, hooray, we're being rescued. Byam and Stuart are the ones who row out to meet the English ship. Once on board, they are faced with the reality that Captain Bly is alive and well and standing right before them, demanding to know where the fuck Fletcher Christian is. Bly assumes the two midshipmen were part of the mutiny and has taken them prisoner. In fact, all of the innocent men are dragged back to England to stand trial. A trial takes place in England, and they are all found guilty of mutiny and sentenced to death, largely based on the not-so-true testimony of Captain Bly. Byam will not go down without a fight. Before his sentencing, he tells the court how the men were abused and starved and flogged and locked in chains. He talks about the unspeakable cruelty inflicted by Captain Bly for no other reason than his insatiable greed and lust for power and deep, deep desire to bully and brutalize the very men he was entrusted to protect. This is a whopper of a speech. Justice never comes for Fletcher Christian. He captains the HMS Bounty to an uninhabited island where his crew and his family will live in hiding for the rest of their lives. Roger Byam eventually ends up being pardoned and allowed to return to the naval duty when powerful friends of his father speak on his behalf before the king. Question one, does mutiny on the bounty stand the test of time? Yes, 100%. The movie is almost 90 years old, and it's still just darn near perfect. It's a theme we see all the time, an insecure, sadistic bully who abuses his power and showers those around him with undeniable cruelty. If this movie were made today, the only difference I think would be the amount of time it takes the men to mutiny. Yeah, today they'd probably be tossing all fat-ass Bly overboard in the first week. Thank goodness that we as humankind have grown tired of bullying and belittling, and we're probably much quicker to stand up in the defense of victims than they were 200 years ago. Even from a military perspective, like, I get that you're still required to follow orders, but now there's processes in place by which you can speak up if an order is dangerous or if it's conduct unbecoming. So I think, or at least I hope, that today's leadership would be far less likely to go along with a crazy captain. Once again, we really have an interesting case study here because everyone knows what's happening is wrong. The question is, who will remain quiet and continue to let it happen? And who will be willing to risk themselves to fight for others? Question two, is it Oscar worthy? I think it is. I mean, it's hard to say because I don't know much about the other competition that year. 
This was only the eighth year they held the award ceremony and the first year that they were called the Oscars. The other movies nominated that year were Alice Adams, Broadway Melody of 1936, Captain Blood, David Copperfield, The Informer, The Lives of a Bengal Lancer, A Midsummer Night's Dream, Les Miserables, Naughty Marietta, Rugals of Red Gap, and Top Hat. I think the bigger question might be what wasn't nominated that year. Mutiny on the Bounty is unique and that all three of the main actors, Clark Gable, Charles Lawton, and Franchotone, I think, were all nominated for Best Actor. At the time, they didn't have a category for Best Supporting Actor. That didn't happen until the next year. And unfortunately, none of them won. It looks as though The Insider won in the most categories, having received four wins that year. So although Mutiny on the Bounty is a damn good film, I would deduce that the lack of any other wins that year means that it may not have been the most well-rounded film. It clearly had a fan base, and that's what propelled it to the Best Picture win. It's on American Film Institute's list of 100 Years 100 Movies. It comes in at number 86. It's also on the AFI's list of 100 Heroes and 100 Villains. Captain Bly is ranked the 19th greatest cinematic villain. Question three, should you watch it? Yes, I I think you should. It's a really great movie. It's well over two hours and there are parts that can drag after a bit, but I think it's worth your time. You feel redeemed in the end. Even if it doesn't go down the way you wish it would, you still get the pleasure of knowing that Fletcher Christian got the very best of Captain Bly. And it feels really good. Take some time to watch this movie. I think you'll enjoy it. Okay, that's a wrap. Thank you for listening. This has been episode 27 of Cinema Sunday. I'll be back next week to discuss another Oscar-winning film. Please tell your friends about this podcast. If you feel so inclined, you can like, follow, subscribe, and even post a review. That helps get Cinema Sunday heard by a wider audience. If you have a comment, a correction, or you just want to tell me that I have shit taste, you can email me at cinemasunday at yahoo.com. The music for Cinema Sunday is appropriately titled So Happy. It is by Scott Holmes Music. I got it off of the freemusicarchives.org, and the work is licensed under Creative Commons by NC 4.0. Links are provided in the bio, and if you happen to visit the Free Music Archive, they do take donations, so please be generous. Thank you, and see you next week.